Hello, I'm Moira Fay, and welcome to the Dublin Business Collective sponsored by SSE Airtricity. The podcast where we get together and jump into the minds of some of Ireland's most famous and inspirational business owners, founders and entrepreneurs. Not everybody can say that they started a business where you two used to make music, but that is precisely what Tom Walsh and his brother Jared did in 2004 when they founded Stay City Group. Stay City started with an apartment owned by Tom and Jared in Dublin's iconic Temple Bar, an apartment that was once a recording studio used by U2 and Sinead O'Connor. Tom saw an opportunity to offer the apartment for short lets to tourists and business people visiting the city, looking for the comfort of home combined with the convenience of a central location. That one apartment quickly became 27 more. And to tell us about it is Tom Walsh himself, founder and CEO of Stay City Group. Tom, thank you so much for being here today with me. Thanks for the opportunity, Maura. Lovely to be here. <laughs> I'm so excited to hear the story. I was saying it to you before. I was like trying to tell you to not tell me too much. I'm excited because it is a true story of homegrown success, internationalization, scale, growth and sustainable business as well. So I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about maybe yourself and then you could take us to the beginning, take us to that apartment in Temple Bar and walk us through Stay City's origins. Perfect. Okay. Um, well, I'm Tom Walsh and along with my brother Jarrah, as you've said, we founded Stay City in 2004. I had a career under my belt already at that stage as um, I graduated in engineering from Bolton Street and then I got a job in July of 1989. I'm not sure you'll uh, know what that really means yourself, <laughs> but uh, that's a long, long time ago in a great company called Loctite. And I spent, I guess, around 16 years in various roles in Loctite engineering initially and then up to a role called plant manager. So responsible for quite a few of the departments in that great company. That company is still there. I guess it's probably 50 year history in Dublin at this stage. Learned a lot of things. We were it was a very entrepreneurial US based company and they um, you know, taught us a lot about management and things like that. I had a really burning desire to have my own business since I was a kid, I think. It's my granddad had his own business passed to my uncles. Another uncle set up uh, his own business, which became nationwide businesses here in Ireland. On my mom's side, uh, there were my grandparents were farmers. And a lot of my uncles and aunts were farmers. So there's a lot of commerce involved in that and a lot of other things. So I always felt I, and my own parents weren't business people, but I always felt I was on the, you know, the near periphery of business my whole life. Always was really interested in it. And as I say to a lot of people, I think I'd be bitter and twisted if I didn't have my own <laughs> business at some stage. And thankfully, maybe after a few attempts, um, Stay City seemed to work and we, you know, built on it um, from 2004. My brother and I, I, my wife and I lived in an apartment in Temple Bar and we um, it wasn't really the place to think of having a family because <laughs> it's quite a noisy spot, as everyone would know. So when we thought about having kids, we said we'll move out. And I didn't want to sell it because of that U2 connection. Yeah. We had bought it as a recording studio, actually, that had just shut down. Oh, right. And we converted it ourselves into an apartment. And it was a great apartment for the Temple Bar initiatives were going to encourage people to convert um, upstairs into residential units. We did that and you um, 2 recorded one of their songs, Desire, for example, in what is now the living room of that apartment. That's brilliant. And <laughs> so it had, I love you 2 and I know yeah. they're, they've um, some detractors in Ireland, but they're fabulous ambassadors for the country. There. Um, and they 
I'm from Malahide. The two of them are from Malahide. There's a lot of connections. And I didn't want to sell the apartment. You shouldn't be sentimental about property, but I was and didn't want to sell it. So I said to my brother, will you throw up a website? They were fairly new things at the time, <laughs> would you believe? And see if we could um, short sell it to tourists to the city. And um, I told my wife, you know, I'm thinking of doing this. This was my third attempt at the business, probably. So she probably just yawned and <laughs> and, uh, and and humored me. But um, I think that was a Sunday when it went live and we got a booking for that Friday. So yeah. I said to my wife, we have to move out of here by Friday. It was our ho- it was our home. We have to move out because we've guests coming in. That's one and way to set a deadline for yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that is what happened. And we moved out during that week and our first American guests arrived for a two week stay. And I remember I got the bug. I brought them into the apartment and hauled their suitcases up the stairs. And then, you know, they're. I saw that they loved it compared to staying in a hotel room yeah. and, um, you know, thought we were onto something. And then we kind of got machine gun fire of bookings. We were so naive. We didn't know about seasonality or anything, but we were lucky. It was coming in. I think that was March and it was coming into really busy annual Dub- yeah. season in Dublin, where which really begins with St. Patrick's Day and then gets busy, busier and busier. And we got a lot of bookings. So we were really on the pig's back with that apartment. And so we decided to lease more apartments and set up a proper business doing it. And our next step was 27 apartments across the Haypenny Bridge in what's called the Italian Quarter. And that's where it started, really. And we the following year, we went into Amsterdam and built up a decent sized business in Amsterdam with a kind of a collaborator over there or a partner. And um, and then I believe we did Birmingham and then Liverpool. And that's where the story really, you know, took got some legs and. 18 years later, we're here today with, uh, you know, a decent sized business now and one that is still growing quite strongly and an amazing team, you know, doing all of the functions in the business. And um, that's our kind of story in summary. I just love how casually you talk about taking the business international because that's such a big leap for so many people. Did that become a goal early on to move outside of Dublin, to move outside of Ireland? You know, how different is it? What's the process? I mean, obviously, if you're if you're in Europe, if you're abroad, like you've different cultural expectations, different audiences. Is it really the same or were there challenges to it? Yeah, I, there's two parts to the answer, probably like the on the selling side, you're selling to the same people who are visiting those cities for business or for leisure. We later discovered that business is a really important component. It shows what we didn't know about it when we set up. But, um, you know, you're selling to the same people on the same missions. So they're going for a short break with their family or with friends or they're there on business. And um, so on the sales side, you're selling very much to the the same people with the same missions and the same needs for those missions on the acquisition of our th- of the properties and we, we our company is a leasehold so we lease everything okay. from usually the buildings are built the properties are built to our specifications usually a pension fund steps in and acquires them and becomes our long-term landlord and we're the tenant for maybe 25 years okay. and then the developer who's built it exits at that point makes his profit and goes on and develops something else and that's usually the equation on the acquisition side, yeah, Europe is a very different place from, you know, from place to place. And yeah. property is a local game. So if you're trying to get a property in the centre of Munich or the centre of London or the centre of Paris, uh, you need to know the local players. And okay. so you need to have your local people on the ground there having those discussions all the time and trying to, you know, convince 
developers that we are good counterparties to you know build a property for us and so on so that's a continuous yeah and it is quite different around Europe yeah I just find it's I I, I think it's amazing well as well when when you see an Irish brand that's expanding so quickly throughout Europe and uh, always curious to know what fuels the want to do that because you know as you say you're delegating that control some to yeah. someone else it's fantastic so as we know Stay City has experienced I, I think significant is not a strong enough word growth in recent years uh, particularly with record growth this year which is amazing news especially against the landscape of a pretty tough time recently for hospitality I suppose my next question would be within the few years that was the the pandemic how were you and, and Stay City able to stay so resilient and focused that when the opportunity came for growth, it really did come for you guys? I have to hand it to the team, really. Like we we knew we were hitting an existential crisis in 2020 and we could see we had we have a property in Venice uh, just off the island, uh, but in Greater Venice. And we could see, unfortunately, the terrible mess that Italy was in in 2020 and the terrible tragedy that, that struck the country. We could see the immediate effect on the business. We could immediately see bookings being cancelled throughout our estate in all of the countries. And we were reading every analyst's report we could possibly you know, consume because we it was news for everybody, I guess, and nobody really knew, well, how long does this go on for, you know, um, I guess that was the first question to try to answer. And we initially, everybody, all the analysts latched on to SARS in 2000 and whatever that was. But it w- that was a one year. Well, it came back in the autumn. It started in the spring and business was fully back to normal in the autumn. So we initially started modeling that in our numbers and saying, OK, we're going to burn. You know, we need a lot of cash just to survive. Yeah. And we initially sized it on that. And then we began to believe that, no, that it, this isn't SARS or people started to educate us that this isn't ours, this is going to be longer running. And the question was how long? And we looked at analyst reports and some were saying, you know, 18 months, two years, three years, four years, five years and so on. And we kind of latched on, would you believe, to the worst case news we could find. And we said, well, look, if we could withstand that, then we're going to be fine. And what would we have to do to withstand that? So we modeled our whole business on an extremely slow recovery and set about raising enough finances to withstand that because we knew we had a great business whenever it came, you know, the world resumed its normal activities, let's say. Um, we had a great team, which is what makes a great business. We have a phenomenally good team. So we, you know, we set about doing that. And once we had cleared our heads with that, we kind of felt back in control. Our job then was to raise enough capital to get through this dreadfully bleak scenario, which was we were talking about 2025 or 2027 for a full recovery, but profit returning a good few years before that. But like, you know, a lot of the excitement gone out of it. But we just said, look, that's they're the cards we've been dealt. Let's just um, face into doing that. And the team didn't blink. They just each went around, you know, filling up as much as we could with key workers and with um, IT had to travel. IT workers had to travel. And so minimizing the losses we were making and then on the finance side, our CFO went about raising the money and yeah. our operations guys went about trying to, you know, use the government supports that were put in place throughout Europe and then minimize our costs everywhere we could. We said famously, don't buy a cup of coffee or a, or a biro on the company's <laughs> expense. And, you know, we came through it as a team and it really strengthened our team to face a yeah. challenge like that, I have to say. Amazing. Uh, um, yeah. So that's what happened. And 
there was something else positive that happened. I was reading a piece by yourself and you had said that if one good thing came from it, it was to bring us face to face with the power of nature and to make us understand that we need to put nature at the centre of everything we do from now on. So if I could take a minute just to talk to you about Stay City's sustainability strategy. In Dublin Chamber, we've been driving the conversation and supports and training for years on this. And I just want to say how personally uplifting and inspiring it is to see Stay City's commitment to a greener future and how vocal you've been about it. And I just love to just hear a little bit more about that, if that's OK. Yeah, making it a bit personal to start with. Um, you know, we grew up in a family and we used to take our holidays in Wexford every year. Uh, you know, a big kind of six week decamp to Wexford and dad would come for two weeks and go back to work. He worked in Aer Lingus. And then we'd stay, mom would stay down with the five of us. My dad made a little windmill down there to create uh, electricity in yeah. the, what was that, in the 70s. So we grew up kind of with, um, in, the, in those days, people were way more conscious of, you know, um, being sparing with the environment and all that sort of stuff. And my dad set off that interest in all of us. We wouldn't use washing up liquid hardly ever because my mum used to say, well, that goes straight out into the shores and into the oceans and all that. And, you know, okay. so we were brought up in a way that was very mindful, mindful of all yeah. of that sort of stuff. My sister took it really to heart and was the seventh person to join Airtricity, which I noted was one of your sponsors. <laughs> and um, she was the seventh person in and led up the um, building of Ireland's first and only offshore wind farm in, in Arklow there on the, on the sea, uh, the sandbank in Arklow. With a lot of other people in electricity, I, I must add, but um, she was fanatical about it. And during COVID, we said, we, you know, I always had that in me, but I felt a bit of a failure in terms of really addressing it. We we always said, oh, we must do it. And this year we're going to do this. And we inevitably fell behind. But during COVID, we said, well, look, we have to just sit up straight and put invest into this and hire the, the right people. Thankfully, my sister came to join us as our chief sustainability officer, and she is fanatical about sustainability and biodiversity and yes. all of that sort of stuff. And she's a real green fingers, but she's also an engineer and she did that offshore wind farm. So we decided to the whole of our leadership team got together and we decided to position ourselves as to do everything we possibly can, I should say, to position ourselves as leaders in this hospitality space in terms of sustainability and climate action and so on. And that's a mission we're in the middle of doing now. And what it means is we have to decarbonize all of our estate. And I guess one of the biggest things we've done is we bought a site in London in January this year to build an apart hotel. It'll probably be a 200, 250 key apart hotel. And we're going to use that to build a, a model building that will be as green as we possibly can make it. Uh, somebody on LinkedIn chided me for saying that uh, and my what I mean by that is well we have to learn what does that mean we don't know what that means but we'll yeah. bring in great advisors and we will try our absolute best to build a building that is really low on operational energy and understand the embodied carbon piece as well so when you build a building the you know the emissions you're making by you know the amount of concrete and steel you're using to build it and so on so we're going to try and learn all of that um, that's one of our major initiatives and the other one, I guess, is we 32 trading apart hotels. We have to every year reduce the energy and green the energy that we're using yeah. in those buildings, reduce single use plastics, reduce the amount of wastewater and all of the, you know, the different dimensions of becoming climate friendly. But we've Pamela, my sister, is building that team in State City with the support of all of the leadership team, eager support of all the leadership team. 
we have to do it. It's very, very obvious looking at what's happening around Europe, around the United States and also in China with record temperatures being hit. Yeah. It's very clear we have to do it. We have to play our part, but we're motivated to do it as well. And exactly, I think that'll be a meandering path to understand the, the solutions that will be technologically possible, but we're really hell-bent on doing it, if you like. Fantastic. And as well, I know a big key part for us is helping businesses to understand the opportunity that's yeah. associated with it, that it's not just, you know, this threat hanging over us. There's incredible opportunity. There's incredible, incredibly positive outcomes by by doing this. And we, we, we see stories from our member companies as well. And it's amazing to see. And I'm looking forward to, to keeping my eye in, on the London property and, and, and seeing yeah. seeing how that all unfolds. You mentioned a few times your team and how important they are. So I just to ask, as the CEO of Stay City, what is your leadership philosophy? And, you know, I'm, I'm mindful as well that it is an international team. You've got your team here. This, you've, you've people abroad. What's your approach? I wouldn't claim to have a philosophy, to be honest, Maura, but I think the simple things that I've come to believe in and, you know, um, some of these are just not, you know, haven't been natural to me, but I've learned from my colleagues, to be honest, really, really open and honest and transparent. So tell you something and tell the next person on my team the same thing. Don't, you know, really, really good communications. Hire brilliant people, you know, <laughs> because they just um, and we've we, you know, we've done that all through the years, but even we're continuing to do it in some of our recent additions to my leadership team are just phenomenal people to add to the phenomenal people already on my leadership team. You know, ambition like we have really huge ambitions or some people would describe them as huge ambitions you know, to have maybe 15,000 keys by the end of the decade trading. But in the context of some established hotel companies have a million keys, you know, we're kind of thinking, well, should we be thinking a lot bigger? And um, so that's like one of the things we definitely have in the team. Um, I hope I've done my bit to bring it, but the team themselves, my leadership team and their teams below certainly have all of those things in spades. And then we are literally fanatical about our customers and we're delivering results my operations colleagues and it's more than just operations it's across the whole team have guest scores as measured on say TripAdvisor or Booking.com or any of those platforms that are better than all of the big brand names by a long shot that you or I could name around the world so our guests love us way more than almost every hotel company on the planet I have to say and we're really proud of that so we non-stop talk those things and you know we more recently trying to um instill agility and speed into our decision making so that we'll make mistakes but make them and get over them and yeah. then learn from them and okay so that didn't work but this is i know this is going to work now and get get some speed in yeah. and that's sometimes a challenge i have to say and it gets from a small company where all the decisions were centered around me I guess I have the challenge to give up on more and more decisions and let the people closer to the coalface best with the best knowledge to make those decisions, make those decisions. And we're making good progress with that. We recently hired a new chief people officer who is phenomenally good and really we're unlearning as much as we're learning at the moment, if you like. So it's a new (laughs) phase in the company, but very exciting, I think. Fantastic. And in terms of the hospitality industry itself, are there any trends that you foresee coming down the line and 
is it something that you're positioning yourself for now? Are you thinking ahead? You were talking even during COVID, you're, you're forecasting different scenarios. Is that something you're thinking of now? Um, one of our larger projects is Dublin 2050, and we're always trying to imagine the future. You know, yeah. what does the future look like with regards to whether it be mobility, energy, finance? You know, what does the future look like for Stay City? Yeah, there are some amazing macro trends that we are initially just by the look of the draw, but I suppose a bit more by design now tapping into. One is the thing, sustainability. It's unescapable, inescapable. And thankfully, Booking.com are starting to use the thing called one green leaf, two green leaves, three green leaves if you're you're a sustainable business. And we don't even quite understand. It hasn't been our focus to understand that, but we need to. But you you said um, that sustainability is a big threat and a challenge, and it's also an incredible opportunity. It is an incredible opportunity. And the people who move fastest will be able to harvest those opportunities a lot better than the people who are laggards. And we want to move fast. That's one macro trend. Um, The, you know, the burgeoning middle classes in the developing countries of India and China will want to see those great cities of Europe and the great cities of the world. So assuming we can figure out a way to fly environmentally friendly and continue to fly environmentally friendly, which I suppose nothing is is an absolute certainty in the world we're into today. Well, then that will be a a big trend. The the work away, the work from home, the work remotely trend really plays into our business because our ground floors in the not too distant future will be co-working spaces where it will be like co-working in a really luxurious ground floor. (laughs) And then you'll be able to stay for a week or two upstairs so you can mix if you've got a flexible company who allows you to go say in the winter, it's not too expensive to stay in Marseille, go down to Marseille for two weeks, work from our apartments, work from our ground floor. And, you know, those kind of things will be possible or go and visit some other city. And so that work from home and co-working trend is one that we're actively really hard working on uh, with another colleague who joined recently called Jacintha Phelan. Um, and she, we're, you know, with Jacintha, we're trying to figure out how to make that ground floor irresistible for um, you know, people co-working, wanting to co-work and have those facilities at their beck and call, let's say, and be able to work really well from there and experience the neighborhood or the cities or, or, or things like that as well as part of that working experience. That's amazing. I love that. I'll be thinking about that. <laughs> and lastly, a question that I always wrap up with. What advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs or business owners, people who have the idea or on the cusp of the idea? Have you any thoughts, any wisdom for people wanting to get started? Well, I I wouldn't call it wisdom (laughs) because I wouldn't be so bold, but I think I have my experience. And I, I, I recently answered that for a newspaper article, and I think I answered it incorrectly. And I did say, um, look, don't sell too quickly because Irish people can grow great big businesses. And one thing I always look toward is this thing called the Mittelstand in Germany. They've got a ferocious wealth of big, sizable businesses, all still German, German, German. So the whole society and economy benefits from that. And we're we've had an amazing thing with multinationals, but we're probably a little bit one dimensional on multinationals and probably need to grow, you know, a much more sizable base of Irish businesses. And it can be done. The Irish are well able to do businesses, uh, run businesses and create businesses and grow them overseas. But I still think that was the wrong answer. I think the answer, if, if I had to give one answer, would be just hire great people. If you see one, try, you know, even if it's expensive to, if it feels a little bit beyond your reach, do it and they'll solve so many problems for you. <laughs> and I think that's uh, 
what I've learned rather slowly in my days in business. But I think that is probably the best advice I could give to, uh, you know, um, burgeoning entrepreneurs. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Tom. That's been amazing. It's been fantastic to hear the Stay City story. And I wish you and your team the very best of success in the future. Thank you so much to everybody for tuning in to this episode of the Dublin Business Collective. Thank you again to our sponsors, SSE Airtricity. And I will speak to you on the next one. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>